0: Acts, Acts 27, can you believe? Next Sunday will be the last chapter of Acts, and then we will recap on the middle of October, uh, October 13th. We're going to go through Acts 1 through 28. It's going to be an all-day thing. Just kidding. No, we're going to highlight the whole book and go back through it, and that will be the close to our time in Acts. The good news is is that god's word is inexhaustive so it's not like even though we are moving on from acts into our next series which will actually take us to exodus and into uh, the sermon on the mount simultaneously which will be really fun to be in the good news is acts doesn't end right the story that we walk through is a story for now for today for for the continuation of our lives as followers of jesus So once again, today we are in Acts 27. Before we read the text together, you know, I want to just back up to the assurance we just heard. Uh, And and I just want to read that again, Paul's language there when he says, But I received mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, in other words, the chief of sinners, Paul acknowledging I was a rebel just like anyone else, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, this is how it goes on, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul continues with this charge because this is a letter written to Timothy. He says, this, I, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding fa- faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some, and he gives some examples, have made a shipwreck of their faith. You know, Paul writing Timothy there, telling him to speak up against false doctrine. That was his address to Timothy. He gave thanks to God for giving him strength and acknowledges there were so many reasons to celebrate Christ for his mercy and deliverance in his own lives. And then he goes, apart from Christ showing up, here's the reality, Paul would have been just like those who were making a shipwreck of their faith. Well, today in Acts 27, we're also going to talk about a shipwreck, this second to last chapter. And and so here's how God's Word continues on. I want to invite you to read verses 1 through 44 with me as we read along. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, raise your hand. We got a couple of folks here who would be happy to hand you a copy. And by the way, if you don't own your own copy, a physical copy of the Bible, this is a gift to you. Just take it with you. You don't have to return it at the end. If no one needs it and you have your own copy with you, great. In the words of Jason, if you have your, your digital copy, pull that up as well. All right. We're not going to stand to read this because it's a long chapter, but hear the word of the Lord. Here we go. Acts 27. You ready? All right. Luke is the writer here, and when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramitium, that's a big word, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, the next day. We put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go with his friends and be cared for. And putting out the sea from there, we sailed from under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And we sailed so slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhaven. That sounds like a town along Michigan or something. It probably is. Near which was the city of Lusia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, the fast was the day of atonement, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, in verse 13, "...when the south wind blew greatly." Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure to secure the ship's boat, the little life raft they have. After hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. So they're tying it down to make sure it stays together. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the surdice, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, to toss it over. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Can you imagine the darkness? And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is Luke's recording here. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men... You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on the same island. And when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. In other words, they're trying to find out the depth of the ocean here. A little farther on, they took a sounding again. It's getting shallower shallower and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern And prayed for day to come. In other words, let's get out of this darkness. And as the sailors were seeking to escape, this is sneaky, from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes Of the ship's boat and let it go. Now, in verse 33 to the end here. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. Imagine that, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. And listen to this for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. That sounds familiar. We've seen that in the Bible before. And when he had said these things, in verse 35, what did he do? He took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, They lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea, so the rest of the food after they had eaten. Now, verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they had planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. In other words, we've got to guard our own job here. Let's not make this any worse. But the centurion, in verse 33, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks are on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. All right, here we go. This is God's holy and errant word. And what do we say together? Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word that truly... We want to believe again today it cannot be exhausted. Even through familiar stories in your your Bible, God, there's always something you're, you're using to work on us. There's always something that you're exposing in our lives, in our hearts, in our belief or our unbelief. Lord, we're asking again today that you would help us. Help us as we want to be faithful to always stick closely to your word and look to Jesus our Savior. We love you. We thank you for the assurance that always is found that Jesus Christ has never not been a deliverer, that his love towards his people is is never ending, and that's really good news. We thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we all pray together. God's people said, amen. All right, i got to be honest. I mean, not that I would stand up here and lie, but... Like, this storm motive, right, it's not an uncommon thing. And truthfully, like, I start to get kind of cynical when I start reading so many of these storm things. I mean, the Bible, that's no foreign language in the Bible, right? Like, from from Old Testament to New, there has been so much seafaring language. You know, we, we sing it in our songs. The Psalms give us this idea of being on raging seas and God's the only one who can... Control the wind and the waves, and he, he calms the storm. And then we see Jesus' example of actually doing that, saying, Stop, halt, be still, when the disciples were in the boat. So, like, there's this language that we can carry as followers of Jesus of, like, Oh man, the storms of life are raging on it so hard. And it's easy to be cynical and just be like, Man, come on, can we move on to something else? Can we talk about something new? So, I want to be cautious and aware of my own heart in this to go, Lord, help me to not try to pull something out of Acts 27 that's not there, right? We're talking about the storm-tossed life. To borrow from one author, Russ Moore, we'll actually read a little bit that he writes in a moment. But my prayer today as we read through this is how do we learn to continue to respond in light of what storms are? And how do we have a a sobering understanding of truly like the difference between, oh, this little thing's a storm in my life and truly saying like, Lord, the storms that happen are under your watch, they're under your control, you're using them and what are you inviting us into to call out before you as our Savior to say, I'm not trying to escape this, instead, maybe you're using this for more than my own gain. Maybe you're using this for more than my own life. Maybe you're using this for, the, for certainly your name's sake, but for the good of those around me. And so that's what we're going to dig into. Acts 27 has so many principles, right, that we could, as we read through that, we could kind of dig into. But let's think about it this morning. Uh, you know, here's what We'll start with all right. We'll just start back from the beginning here. Paul is on his way to Rome. As we've been through Acts, this has been the continued thing. As the Lord has said, you're going to go. You're going to stand before Caesar. This thing will happen. The Lord has willed it. It's going to happen. And now Luke, the writer of Acts, it's decided that we should set sail. It's it's Paul, and and obviously when we hear that number two hundred and seventy six, there must have been a fairly large crew between these different boats they get on, and possibly a lot of prisoners. And what's interesting is, like, we hear about Paul a lot, but the fact that Luke is a witness to this, and he's the one writing Acts, he brings in a couple of more names. So we're like, man, were they prisoners as well? Were they just subjecting themselves to, like, we're going to journey along with Paul? We don't know exactly. We just know they're here on the boat, too, because they're using this... We language, Aristarchus is one of the guys that joins them or journeys with them. You know, that's not an unfamiliar name. He actually was a Thessalonican from Macedonia, this region here uh, that Paul had been in previously. And he's actually introduced earlier in Acts 19. Uh, You can turn back there at some point and remember there was a riot in Ephesus that broke out. He was one of the guys that gets brought into that. So he's not an unfamiliar player in this, but he is journeying with some of Paul's other cohorts. Luke, this guy, and possibly some other guys. And then we hear about this centurion who's leading the way that Paul is submitted to, Julius. And it says in verse 3, there must have been some favor there, that he treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go be with his friends and be cared for while they were at a place called Sidon. Well, so let's stop. Paul's journey has not been an easy one. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the, the uh, situation of the shipwreck at this point. You know, they're just about to board the boat and head on. And it's interesting that the Lord's kindness has continued to be seen through this, that the Lord would give Paul an opportunity to be cared for. It must have been that in Sidon there were other disciples around. And so the fact that Julius is like, man, I trust you. Go be with your people and be cared for. is really a neat thing that the the Lord would give some favor there, and we'll see it kind of play out as we continue on through this story in Acts 27. The journey soon becomes a windy one, right? They have to sail under the lee of Cyprus. Lee is just a a weird word for refuge. We're, We're looking for space to avoid wind. It would be where there would be a possibly a coastal mountain that they could be near, and the wind, they could be blocked from being blown out to sea further. And then later, it's recorded in verses 7 and 8, they arrive with difficulty at Nidus, and the wind did not allow us to go further. And then continuing on in verse 9, it moves from difficult to dangerous. There's this language that Paul gives us here of of a fast, I was like, why are you bringing that up? Well, Paul's bringing out, just some subject matter here, Paul's bringing out, the, the fast was other word for the Day of Atonement, this season that the Jewish people would celebrate. And it happened in October. Well, it's going to get colder, right? This, Paul, Paul's not new to being a seafarer, right? We've traced his journey through Acts, and the guy's been on a boat a lot. So it's not like he's unfamiliar with what's going on and what should happen. And as he understands the time of year that they're in, he's saying, hey, listen, this probably isn't wise for us to just keep on moving in. We may need to consider docking here for a while, even though it's going to be cold, because if we get stranded out there, it's going to get much worse. So it moves from difficult to dangerous. This time of year, he acknowledges. And then Paul advises them in verse 10, what does he say in verse 10 of Acts 27? Saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. You know, we've talked about this idea before in Acts, but it's an opportunity for us to pause right there. You know, because once again... Acts really is about costly obedience, isn't it? This whole story of like seeing God's church continue to move, seeing the Spirit work, the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, it's about this continue in obedience. How are you going to continue in obedience? Not by your own strength, but by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you're not alone on this journey. I give you, as you understand your weakness, you look to the Spirit who indwells you as my people. Jesus reminding that as he sends the Spirit out in Acts. And is, we've talked about this disobedience. This what is it? It's costly. You know, this isn't new for us. We could simply remember Paul's journey and just say, oh yeah, it's really difficult, it's hard. But much more, what if we just... Think broader here and remember Jesus' journey to the cross. I want to, for a second here, take us to Matthew 10 and Matthew 16. Maybe some familiar words that you remember that Jesus told his disciples. One in Matthew 10, 39. This is kind of hard to hear because, honestly, like, there's a a familiar language that we use in, in common day, Like, Even for those who aren't followers of Jesus, it's a phrase that's been used. I have my cross to bear. It's my cross to bear. Oh, this difficult thing, it's my cross to bear, right? That's not an unfamiliar phrase. Well, I want us, as we read Matthew 10, 39, Jesus' words, I I want us to dig in a little deeper. Jesus tells his followers, his disciples, he says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Similar language in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus talking to his disciples again. Verse 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's something there. Uh, I didn't think that I had the best way of describing it, but I, I have a, a person, a writer I respect a lot. He's a pastor as well, and he's a, a part of a ministry um, called the ERLC. Uh, his name is Russell Moore. He wrote a great book called "The Storm Toss Family." I recommend it, but here's one thing he says among many things, and he's referring to this. He actually uses Luke's account of of a similar uh, phrase from Jesus of denying oneself, bearing the cross, or taking up the cross and following Jesus. And he says this, he says, that part is controversial among today's Christians, largely and this is speaking to me, all right? I think it speaks to all of us. Largely because we don't understand what Jesus is really saying. First of all, we don't like, like Jesus' contemporaries. We don't walk down roads with the sight of people writhing in torture on actual crosses along the way, which would have not been uncommon for Jesus' contemporaries. You know, to see either someone beaten on the roadside, or someone who is being punished as a criminal hanging for all the town to view. That's not common for us. We don't actually see that. We see cross as a safe metaphor for the stresses of life. The way an office supply store manager once told me of yearly inventory as my cross to bear. How many other examples can we give of of little trite things where we go, oh, it's just my cross to bear. And often we forget the cost of obedience that we've been called into. That's much more than the cost of, yeah, i got this hard thing going on. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take time away from something that I really want to be doing. Or I really was hoping, I had a dream to do this. But it's my cross to bear to finish this assignment first. You know, I want us to think for a second. Pause. Because I've been asking myself this, this week in this, in this word, what is our response to that right here and right now? What is our response to Matthew 10 and Matthew 16, to Jesus' words? You know, the truth is there's dreams that we have. There's this belief that the good life is in, in short distance. It's in view. I've just got to get over these few things and I'll get there. And what does this have to do with Acts 27? Well, Paul has given a warning Saying, hey, this is going to happen. And I think our response is often like the centurion and the the soldiers of like, that's great, but I've got some other things going on. And in the kingdom of God, often when we understand that God is calling us into something, something that maybe someone, a fellow brother or sister says, hey, I'm telling you, this is coming your way. Uh, That may sound vague. I'm trying to think of an example. Like, hey, I'm telling you that just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean that the good life is going to look like this. Or just because you move into this neighborhood and join church in the square doesn't mean that this is just going to be this beautiful thing where we gather and we just sing some songs and we leave here, we leave here and then we just come back next week and go, I got my tank filled. There's going to be hard stuff that we have to step into. There's going to be the neighbor next door that I pray, I hope, calls us and says, I'm in crisis. And I... I just have to believe that you're going to help me through this, that you're going to care for me. And it may cause us to have to say no to something that we go, oh, that was in grasp. I was going to do that. But, you know, I've got, got to lay down that financial thing or I've got to lay down this time that I really want to spend doing this thing because my neighbor is in need. Or my brother or sister in my group has just confessed to a, a sin that really is going to be a long journey. And it's and it's. Causing me to, to need to step in and bear this with them and say, I've got to, I've got to hold God's word just the same and say, I'm going to walk with you in this. And the truth is, is I really want to escape it because it's really uncomfortable. And yeah, the truth is, is like, the more you bring out what's going on in your life, the more I see what's going on in my life, and that means I got to address it before the Lord too. And so this cost of obedience can, continues to arise. And I just wonder, I just wonder when Jesus was calling his disciples and they were going on this journey because there was an eagerness there the disciples had, you know, to see signs and wonders from the Savior of the world, to to have this idea as the disciples were going believing, at least to some extent, because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet, right? To to have this idea that like this guy's somehow going to overthrow Rome. He's going to be this king and he's going to come strike down all the oppression and it's going to look this way. And Jesus was saying, you don't understand that I'm going to a cross yet. And all the while, I'm I'm telling you even before it happens, there's a cross that you will have to bear. And if you're going to follow me, You're going to have to deny yourself. He even went on to say, you're going to have to hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister. And it's like, whoa, hate's a strong word. What do you mean by that? In other words, your love of me, your satisfaction of finding life in me of what I will accomplish will be greater than what anyone else can provide. And so now we come back to Acts 27 thinking about that. Here's the deal. I know, you know, for us, we've, we've talked about here in this room a lot about doing the hard things. We've talked about in group life about stepping into the hard things. We've talked about maybe staying put in the city and saying, like, I've, for some of us, there's this dream that, like, I want to build my career here and then I want to move on to something else. And, and knowing, yes, will God call some of us Elsewhere, absolutely. Will God call us to a season here and lead us somewhere else? Yeah. And is there a sin to leave the city? By no means. But for some of us, this idea of the good life in view looks like I just give some time here. I just buy my time. I just make it through. I avoid the messy. And then I look towards the good life is going to be like this. You know, we've talked about those things. And I pray that hearing those things over and over doesn't just become a source of exhaustion for us or become a source of like, man, I feel like you're getting on to me. It's more of a call of like, what is Jesus truly calling us to, to step into the hard stuff and remain? How, when we see what we're going to talk through with this shipwreck, are we supposed to stay with it? And maybe the goal is not to escape pain. Maybe God's design from creation to restoration is not Just to say, I'm trying to create an Eden, a Garden of Eden again here on earth. I'm trying to create my living room to be a new Garden of Eden. I'm trying to create my job status to be my new Garden of Eden. I'm trying to create my social status, my relational status as the new Garden of Eden. Maybe God is showing us through the whole counsel, His whole counsel from beginning to end, my goal for you is not to escape pain. I'm not here to be your oppressor and to crush you. Maybe the Lord's saying, my goal for you is actually to sit in the pain and understand what it means to ride along as the boat is going down and understand I can still preserve you and I'm using all the heartache and the pain and I'm actually working on you and I'm doing it for others around you and it's all for my name's sake. So, friends of Jesus... Here's the truth. God doesn't call everyone to the same thing. Uh, Maybe as we think about the complexities of dealing with the messy, the socially complex, the political mess, you know, here's what we're going to remember again today. And I'm just kind of giving the moral of the story before we even finish the text here. Jesus, hear this. If there's one thing to encourage you to write down or remember, when we read God's word from cover to cover and we see Jesus Christ as the central figure, as the victorious Savior, here's what's not there. Jesus did save us, but did he save us to make life better for us? Or did he save us to go and declare he's better? He's better than all of life's offerings. Declare, Jesus is better than my best escape plan. The good things in life should give us reason to pause and say, Yes, you are a kind Lord. You are gracious. Everything I have is yours and I'm grateful. And it is not a sin to live the good life, right? Jesus invites us into the good life. I just wonder if we've distorted what the good life really means the hard things, the bad things, they should give us reason to pause and say, Lord, this is not how I wanted it, but I'm trusting because I've seen in your word over and over you use every single situation for your name's sake, and that's better than my plan. Knowing that God's faithfulness does not diminish even when we see hardship ahead, How do we respond to that? Well, that leads us to continue on in this passage because we're going to see some of those examples. So let's jump to verses 11 and 12 quickly and move on. But the centurion, what was his response to Paul's warning? He paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there. On the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both the southwest and the northwest and spend the winter there. Now we get into this storm uh, when neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned you know the verses 13 through 20 give us this description of what's going on the winds are getting crazy it's tempestuous and then in verse 20 there's this description it's interesting because Luke is the one saying this Luke is the one who's been with Paul and then at the end of verse 20 what does he say all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned notice the motif there too I think God is very creative in the way that He has worked His Word and the way that He works through the authors of, of His Scriptures because there's this theme that arises again of darkness and light. And I wonder for us if in the same way when we're saying, I think I can do it on my own. I think I've got this. I think I can figure out this plan. I think I can navigate the hardships of life rather than going... Maybe I'm supposed to sit in it. Maybe I'm supposed to remain. When we make our own plans, it's like we're going back. You know, if if Jesus has called us out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light, then when we're trying to make our plan, it's like, no, I think I'll go back into darkness. I think I'll figure out my way rather than remembering, Lord, you're my guide. You're truly the light of the world. And instead of consulting you, coming back to your word, I think I would rather sit in that. And that's what's going on here. There's darkness and they're freaking out. They're going, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And then here's Paul's response. Listen to what he says next. Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and and incurred this injury and loss. Now we're in verse 22. Yet now... I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. I think it's beautiful how Paul uses that language, because he would use this language later in one of his letters to the church. He would say, I I implore, as an ambassador of Christ, I implore that you would be reconciled to God. And now Paul has this urging, take heart Take heart, let me point you to my God who is the true rescuer and deliverer. For there will be no loss of life among you. It could have just stopped there. But the truth is, we don't always believe that upon hearing it, right? When Jesus is reminding in His his Word, take heart, remember, believe, follow me. Yes, I didn't tell you it was going to be easy. But take heart, I'm not here to crush you. I'm not here to destroy you. The delivery plan, the rescue plan goes farther than what you see. And so Paul laying this out, here's what continues on. But only the ship is what will be lost. Verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. So... God had already promised that. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar. And this angel of the Lord is reminding him, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who will sail with you. What's interesting here, it's God's grace in this. You know, certainly we could say this is about Paul. You know, this is about Paul delivering the message of Jesus Christ onto Rome and about the other missionaries with Paul. But what's interesting is it's probably true that this ship's crew, they're not followers of Jesus. The prisoners there, they're not followers of Jesus. There's no telling what all had been going on with all these people who were aboard these different journeys of the boat all 276 of them that will be recorded later. But what's interesting is that being around the people of God, there's a beauty in God's covenant that even provides protection for those around the people of God. It makes me think about the same way we think about our children here. You know, like our children joining us in the gathering. My kids, I know they don't, exercise faith in Jesus yet. As we continue to rehearse the gospel with them and teach them and point them to Jesus, they know the words. They know have hope in Jesus. They know some knowledge about this. But there's something wonderful about understanding that they are brought into the covenant family of God. That they still get to receive some of the benefits of God's covenant. In other words, they get exposed to the goodness of God, even though they don't know Jesus Christ yet. Are they believers yet? Are they followers of Jesus? No. Has their heart been transformed? No. But God is being gracious in providing a grace to them in spite. And I think that's a beautiful thing and how we see that even in this this illustration of this ship. You know, God's saying I'm going to preserve the lives of everyone here. A beautiful overarching grace that we see from the Lord. And then Paul says in verse 25, so take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Once again, what I find interesting here is how the Lord has more in mind than Paul's safety. You know, he's going to save the whole crew, all 276 of them. They're going to lose the boat, all of its contents, but not a single life will be harmed. And just going back to that idea of darkness and light, when, you, when you've been introduced to the light of Jesus, you don't... You don't necessarily care about a promise like that. All you can see is, is darkness, right? When you've only been introduced to it, but you're not truly a follower. And so here's how the story moves on, right? The response to the promise. They've been introduced to a hope. You know, Paul has said, take heart. I urge you, take heart. Here's what the Lord has spoken. Here's what the angel of the Lord has spoken. And here's what I believe to the God whom I worship, I see his promises fulfilled over and over, but their response is a little bit different. It's like, okay, God has said this. Maybe we should listen to this. What do the soldiers do? They get sneaky. They're putting down anchor, anchors as the text moves on, and they put down anchors in the back of the boat, and then they're like hey, let's make it look like we're laying down anchors in front. But what we're really going to do is we're going to lower this lifeboat. We're going to hop in, and that way we don't have to go down with the ship. And the rest of you, well, oh well. I wonder if we're, how often we're like those soldiers or that crew. You know, can you imagine uh, all of the ways that we may be like them? The soldiers seem to listen for a bit, but when things look rocky, they start looking for a, a better option. I wonder for us, you know, just talking about again, like the Lord calls us to sit in the hard things. The Lord calls us to step into the hard things. That sometimes we can nod to it and go, yeah, yeah, I'm on mission for the Lord. Uh, and I'm, I'm speaking to myself here. But the truth is, is like once it gets really messy, like especially if it involves someone else, think about the example of like, you have a close friend, you have someone who's beloved in your life, and they call you out on something. Or you understand there's some friction there. And like if it happens enough, instead of pursuing reconciliation, what's easy to do is like, i got to cut ties. i got to cut the ropes. And I'm going to hop on my little lifeboat, and I'm rowing away the other way from that person. Right? It happens here in the church all the time. I say the church broadly. It certainly can happen right here in this body, but it happens broadly in the church. You know, we're we're to be the first people to understand true reconciliation, to understand that Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility. But the truth is is sometimes it's a little bit more of an individualistic approach for us where we go, I'm good as long as I I just do the right things. And, and have my, my little time with Jesus and I'll read the word and I'll sing the right songs and I'll make sure to gather and I'll make sure to be faithful to my group. But the truth is this issue I've got with this other brother and sister I've got with this other person, it's so messy that I just got to cut them out and so we hightail it. Or, gosh, when we're walking in group life together, here's a, here's a profound example I think for us. Walking in group life and something comes out in a group and we go... Oh, I can't deal with that. I can't deal with that person, their outburst, their needs. They say the weirdest things. I'm probably that guy who says all the weirdest things in my group. And like, we finally go, I think I'm going to dip out of this group. I don't want to be here any longer. Is, are there seasons when the Lord may change a group and and, and it's like, hey, you know what? We're moving to a different area of the neighborhood and our, our times work different and we need to step in. It's absolutely, so please don't hear like if you ever change groups that that's a wrong thing. But sometimes what really happens is we go, I can't stand that anymore. It's so uncomfortable. It's so messy. I've got to just dip out. I've got to figure out another way. Or you know what? I can show up occasionally here, but man, when we start talking about the things that we're really called to as a church, when we talk about orphan care, when we talk about immigration and what our neighbors are dealing with, when we talk about undocumented immigrants who need our care, who need us to step in and advocate, because this is a gospel thing too. When we talk about all these things and we're going, oh, that doesn't align with where I'm at politically and I feel like i got to choose a side and we start talking about these things and we go... I don't want to mess with that. That's uncomfortable. I feel like you're calling me to something that I just don't agree with. You know, those things where we just go, I want to jump out. I just want to dip out. I'm kind of tired of that. I feel like you've been too harsh in what you're saying from the pulpit. It's just weighing on me. Friends, first of all, hear that God's Word, it is not here to oppress us, crush us, It is here to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. And as we ride through the mess, God is calling us to hang in there and stay in. And I am speaking to myself before anyone else because I am the first to go. It's difficult. I don't want to mess with it. I need to figure out another way out. I need an escape plan. So I think Jesus is calling us again. How are you being an escape artist in the life of obediently following me? And how are you supposed to stop Trying to escape, it means sit in there and rest, and and sit through the hard stuff, in the tension. Why? Because Jesus continues on to remind us, and we hear Paul's words here in Luke, in Acts twenty-seven again, as Luke writes, and we're reading here in verse thirty-three through thirty-seven. Let's continue on. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. And hear this. This is it. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And then what does Paul do? He continues on. When he had said these things, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. This is interesting. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing it out, uh, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So 33 through 30, 38 there. Man, God's beautiful promise. It's not new in this section in Acts when Paul says, Not a hair on your head will perish. You know, because Luke's gospel would actually record similar words from Jesus. Hear this from Luke 12, 7. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. You know, we've sung before. It's kind of like what we sang with It Is Well. Well, You may be familiar with that that song, His Eye is on the Sparrow, that gospel song, right? And I know He watches me. If the Lord clothes the flowers of the field in beauty and they're not worrying about what they will do and how they'll spin and toil, or if the Lord provides for the birds of the air, all these things he's created, how much more does he care for those he's created in his image? In other words, us human beings, those who are made to be, ultimately made to be like Christ in Christ Jesus. So this idea of while we're in the tempestuous mess, fear not. It's a beautiful reminder for us. And then what does Paul do? He breaks bread before them and gives thanks. This thing where God continues to show, I provide. I provide for my people. And my people will take this and provide for those around. And this will be the way that I use my people to extend the good news of Jesus. How we step in and those types of provisions too. He's feeding them physically. Paul gives thanks. And then what happens here? Verse 38 or verse 39 through the end. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on it, which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef so they run the vessel aground, the bow stuck and remained immovable. So they're not going anywhere. And the stern was being broken, so the ship is breaking down. And the soldiers' plan, their plan was to kill the prisoners lest anyone should swim away and escape. But... Here again, this wonderful thing where God continues to give favor. The centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that some, no, that all were brought safely to land. Now there's a lot here. You know, we could just... Read Acts 27 and say, well, this is just about God's providence, that he delivered Paul safely. And it's true, it is. Or we could stop here and say, well, this is about just trying to be delivered from a storm. But really what I believe the Lord continues to impress upon us here and now today is not so much how we devise a plan to escape, but how the Lord is saying the storm is not meant to be left. The storm will rage on. But you need to believe that I'm in control of it. And you need to believe that I'm calling you to sit in it. I'm calling you to remain. I'm not calling you always to escape it. Does that mean that... Let me back up a little bit. Does that mean that we should say, Well, if anything hard happens, then we shouldn't call out to God and ask for deliverance from it. Absolutely not. I think the Psalms give us so many times and examples of how we cry out to God and say, Please don't let me bear this any longer. Paul's own language of there's a thorn in my flesh and I wish I didn't have to deal with it. But what did he come back to? For some reason, you're not taking it away. And I'm learning more and more. You're using it to work on me, to humble me, but you're also using it for the good of those around me. And you're using it to expose your own glory. And you're helping me believe again who you are. You know, there's a, a beautiful way of rehearsing the word of the Lord. Um, some of you may be familiar with the, the phrase catechism or the word catechism. It's this device of asking questions and giving answers. And there's a particular one that was, was made in the 1500s. You may come from a, a high liturgy background where you're like, oh gosh, please don't make me go through that. I went through that. As a young child, I had to learn all these things. But there is something wonderful about the rhythms. It's the same way like when you're in group life and you're asking questions and you're giving answers, what we're really doing is we're getting at the heart of of who we believe God to be. When you see this in God's Word, when you hear Jesus say this, or when you see this exposed in your own heart in light of God's Word, how does this help you believe who God really is in His entirety? Or when you see this, how does this help you follow? Or how does this help you step back and go, I need to stop running this way. I need to run towards Jesus instead. All these things, that's in a sense catechizing one another. But there's this formal way, and I want to pull up on the screen for us this catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism. And I'm going to read it for us, but I want you to just be able to read it along. This was given by a guy named Frederick III in Germany. This was about 1515. The reason it was made is because there was a controversy arising over the Lord's Supper, which we'll take in a moment. And it was this idea of people teaching that somehow when we eat this, it'll physically be Christ's body, and when we drink it, we're actually consuming the blood of Christ. And so they wanted to address this with Scripture and go, wait, 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 what does God's Word actually have to say about this? And then they decided, wait, we need to just go back from the beginning. And so here's this, also a modern-day reference for both individuals, families alike. I can't recommend enough is the New City Catechism. It's a book that Tim Keller was a part of of writing. It's a great little book to just go through and walk through the whole of Scripture. Uh, But hear this. I want us to listen as we close this morning and as we think about what it means to stay in and not cut ties and not try to find the fastest escape route. Question This is on Lord's Day 1 in Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? And then here's the answer. That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood, and He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Brothers and sisters, Friends here who are visiting today, let's rehearse this over and over. What it means to belong to Jesus, how Jesus makes a way to be invited into His family, and what it means to sit in the hard stuff and not pursue the escape route.